Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. A couple of months ago, my, uh, my daughter Mabel was playing in a netball tournament down at the, uh, the, the netball courts down there at Mile End at Priceline, I don't even know, we'll call it Priceline Stadium. So she was playing down, there was a three-day tournament during the school week and my son Bailey, the oldest one, he attends Temple College, which is about 800 metres or so from that stadium. And so we had a conversation, Joe was going to be down there with, with Mabel and the conversation was like this, well, Bailey, after school, what do you want to do? Do you want mum to come and pick you up? Or do you want to finish school and do you want to walk to the stadium and meet mum and Mabel there and then they'll take you home? And Bailey, who's now discovering a little bit of independence, catching the bus, you know, all those sorts of things, goes, oh, I'll walk. I'd love to walk. That'd be, and he goes, this is the exact word he said to us. He goes, that's easy. I've been there before. I was like, okay. Are you sure? He goes, yeah, that's easy. I've got that. So we're like, all right. So we pulled out the map because how many of you know that when your child says that's easy, it doesn't necessarily mean it's easy. Anybody in this house? So we pulled out the map and we sort of went through it. We talked him through it. This is where you got to go. This is what it's going to look like. But how many of you also know that sometimes what you see on a map when you're actually placed in that reality is not as easy as it first seemed on the map? Has anyone ever been walking through the city with Google Maps going, I'm sure it's here somewhere? Anybody? Or is that just me? The amount of times I'm there and I'm like, this doesn't even make sense. I'm standing on this road. Am I walking that way? Where's this shop? And I'm like freaking out. It's right there, but I got no idea where I am. So the day came for Bailey to finish school and to walk to Priceline to meet Joe and Mabel. And it was supposed to, according to the maps, only be about a, like an eight or so minute walk. And by this stage, Joe's waiting. She's texting me. She's like, well, school finished about 25 minutes ago and he's still not here. And so there was some nervousness, right? I eventually get a text about half an hour after school finished from Joe saying, he's made it. And we're like, well, that's exciting because she was getting a bit stressed and I was getting a little bit stressed thinking, oh no, our son's lost in the city somewhere. What are we going to do? Bailey then gets there and he says, oh, mum, you're not going to believe what happened. I started walking and where I thought there was supposed to be a road, there was a train station and I had no idea where I was going. And he goes, and I was walking around and I was like starting to get a bit worried. And then what I did is I said a prayer and I said, Jesus, please help me get to the netball. And he said, Dad, at that exact moment, a train pulled up and about five girls wearing netball gear got out of the train. And I just followed them straight to the stadium. And he goes, Dad, I've always believed in Jesus, but now I really do. Some people might call that a coincidence. I call that an answer to prayer. Some people might say, well, you know, that's just good luck. I say, that's a little miracle. And how many of you know that God still works miraculously in the world today? 
that God is still working. The Holy Spirit is still working in the church, in the world to draw people into a living, vibrant relationship with Christ. And how many of you have ever been in a place just like Bailey, where you get to that point where you're wandering around and you're at this this moment in time where you're literally at the end of yourself. Where you come to a point where you go, if God doesn't intervene in this moment, Jesus, help me get to the netball. If you don't come in, if you don't break in in this situation right now, I'm completely lost. I don't know where to go. I don't know if I'm supposed to go left, if I'm supposed to go right. I don't know how to deal with this situation. I am lost. And unless you intervene, I'm in an awful lot of trouble. Has anyone been there? This is where we find ourselves in the text today. In in an impossible situation. Where unless God comes through, Unless God breaks in, the church is about to suffer an incredible loss. You see, it's fascinating to me as this chapter starts, it says it was about that time or about this time. What time? As you come to the end of chapter 11, we did this last week, Nick Tui preached a great word, but at the end of chapter 11, it tells us that there was a great famine that spread across the land and actually that the Jerusalem, the Christians in Judea were suffering intensely. And so Christians from all around where where the word had been going out were giving gifts to try and support the Christians, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, right? So they're already suffering. And then it says that Herod, the king with a great deal of power and influence, turns his attention specifically to persecute the church. Why? Probably because Herod's post is in this area and he probably wants to find his way higher up the food chain with the Roman Empire. And so he's found favour with the Jews by persecuting the Christians. And it says right here that he intended to persecute them. And then he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Now you've got to understand how significant this is. James, the brother of John. James, the brother of John is one of the three. See, Jesus had his 12 disciples, but he also had his three. He had Peter, James and John. He had the three who he just drew that little bit closer. He had those who he, the three who he took up the mount with the transfiguration. He had the 12 who prayed to them, the three who he brought nearer and dearer. And he said, hey, I want you to just come and do life a little bit more closely. There's something on your life, something I wanna sow into you around leadership to impact the church. You're gonna carry something that these other guys aren't gonna carry as I go and ascend to the Father. There's something that you have that I wanna give you or something I wanna give you to impart to you. James is one of those guys. James is, is called, a, Jesus gave him a nickname. Anyone got a nickname? Be cool if Jesus gave you a nickname, right? James had a nickname. He was a son of thunder, which meant he was a little volatile. <laughs> There's a great story where, uh, 
where James is uh, chatting with Jesus and there's some people who did some stuff and James' reaction is like, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven? <laughs> like that's his kind of go-to when stuff isn't going well. Let's like, let's go hard or go home. And so Jesus was like, you're a son of thunder. Along with John, you're a son of thunder. Like he was a passionate, he was a vibrant kind of human being and and he was one of those very close to Jesus and he was a significant leader in the early church. And as Herod said about, with intention to persecute the church, James became the very first disciple to be martyred. So Stephen was martyred, but Stephen wasn't one of those 12 disciples. James becomes the first disciple martyred for his faith in Christ. This is huge. The church is hurting, they're grieving, they're probably a little stressed and worried about what the heck is going on. How could God let James be beheaded? And then Herod goes about and he grabs Peter. And he seizes Peter and he arrests Peter, but because it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you're not allowed to do any executions. Like Herod's seeking favour with the Jews If he was to execute Peter at this time, one, it would probably cause a riot. Two, it would desecrate the festival. So he's trying to win favour. So he's like, Peter, I'm gonna lock you away in prison and you're gonna be in prison for a while. And so it does a couple of things, right? Firstly, it actually gives a, a window of hope because Peter's not dead yet. He's on his deathbed. He's in, a, he's in an awful lot of trouble, but he's not dead yet. And at this moment in time, the story sort of breaks into two scenes. There's the foreground scene, which is the story of Peter in prison. And then there's the background scene, which is the story of a church labouring in prayer. And because what's happening here is as Peter is arrested, the church doesn't just throw their arms up in the air and say, well, God let James go and now Peter's in trouble and this is just rubbish and we're gonna give up. No, the church, it says they earnestly prayed. I love that. That word, do you know what it means? It it literally means to be stretched out like a muscle being stretched to the very edge of its capacity. So it means to be uh, labouring, to be tarrying, to be giving their all, to coming to the end of themselves without ceasing. The church is in this place of utter reliance upon God and they are crying out that God would do something for Peter in this place. That they believe that there is one more miracle on Peter's life. Think about who Peter is. As I was studying this this week, I was thinking about the reality. I think Peter, in terms of the New Testament, in terms of the disciples and everything uh, that happened there, I think Peter is actually privy to and a part of more miracles than anybody else, right? Because he's one of the three. So he saw more stuff than the other disciples saw. But also he was the one dude who did some things and had some miracles happen that nobody else had. This is the guy who got out of a boat and walked on water. Yeah? Like this is that dude. 
This is a guy, yeah, he's seen, he's seen the lame healed. He's seen the blind see. He's seen lepers cleansed. Like he's seen incredible things that Jesus has done. He's seen the Lord transfigured. He's walked on the water. But more than that, he was the one who took out his sword and struck the high priest servant's ear. It was him who did that, thinking, let's go. This is the moment. This is when we go to war. This is when Jesus establishes his kingdom. He's like, I'm here to die for Jesus. So he takes out his sword, cuts off the ear, and he's the one who saw Jesus pick up that ear, put it straight back on and have him look him in the eye and say, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And he's the one who in that place of confusion and despair and like, what the heck is going on? Then denies Jesus. And he's the one who walks into the empty tomb, though John got there first with a nice humble brag in Scripture saying, hey, I'm faster than Peter and I'm fitter than Peter, but I let him come in first. Peter's the one who walked into the tomb and saw the folded up garments. Peter's the one who met the Lord on the beach and experienced the radical, beautiful mercy of God, forgiving him for the very abandonment that he expressed over Christ. Peter's the guy who stood up in front of 3,000 people as a fisherman and opened his mouth and the Spirit of God gave him words to say and 3,000 people got saved. Peter's the guy who sat in an upper room with a young girl who was dead and saw her raised to life. Peter's the guy who walked past people and his shadow made them well. This is Peter. He has seen and been like privy to miracles. He has been a part of miracles. He has spoken and prayed over people and seen the power of God. This is a guy who has encountered miracle after miracle after miracle, all in the context with the church around him, with disciples around him, with people, with Jesus with him, leading him, helping him, guiding him. This is Peter. And fascinatingly, this chapter is the second to last time Luke will mention Peter. The last time is in Acts 15 at this thing called the Jerusalem Council, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. But this is the last time that we see the miracle working power of God in Peter's life. with everything that Peter has seen, with everything that Peter has been a part of. Now he's alone, chained in a dungeon. Let's not call it prison. Sometimes we think of prison in the, Old, in the New Testament or in the Scriptures and we liken it to a prison for today. No, 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 it's a dungeon. It's pitch black. It's cold. It's wet. He's behind iron bars and he's chained. Now you've got to understand, look, can, I, can I just paint a picture? You see, this is, even the, even the most, in, like the worst of criminals, like even the revolutionaries of the day, those people who the, the Romans and the Jews perceived to be the most dangerous, volatile criminals of the day, even those guys weren't chained to guards. 
They were thrown in dungeons. The very worst, maybe, were chained to one soldier. Understand the respect, the fear that these guys have for Peter. Do you see that? There's something about Peter that they're like, there's something on this guy and we've got to be awfully careful. We're throwing him into the dungeon. I'm actually going to assign 16 soldiers to him, keeping a constant 24-hour watch, four soldiers at a time for 24 hours a day and he's going to be chained to two of them just in case just in case something radical happens so he can't escape. That's the context here. Pete, like That's how serious they've taken Peter's situation and, and the fact that Peter's the guy who'd already been in prison, he'd preached to the Sanhedrin and God had moved and he'd got out of there. But unlike that time where he had John with him and unlike in the future where Paul and Silas are singing in prison, they're together, Herod's like, no, 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 we need to isolate Peter. He's going to be by himself. And I'm going to chain him to two guards and we're going to lock him in a dungeon. We're going to keep him there until this festival ends. And my intention is that the day the festival ends, I'm going to bring Peter out for trial. You know what that means? It means execution. (laughs) So Peter is in a hopeless situation. This great man of God who's lost one of his dearest friends, chained between two soldiers in a dungeon with 14 other soldiers whose attention is firmly set on keeping him right there with nowhere to go and no one else around. He's in desperate need of one more miracle. Maybe he's sitting there thinking, well, maybe this is it. Maybe this is how it ends. Maybe the Lord's going to take me home. That was Herod's intention. But the church had gathered in earnest prayer. And so what we see is this awesome moment where we see Herod's intention put up against the church's intercession. The enemy's desire against the church's devoted prayer that Herod would have Peter destroyed and the church would get on their knees and believe that God had one more miracle for Peter. That's the scene that we enter into. Are you with me? Are you there? And it's in this scene that we see God on the move. And I want to encourage us this morning. I don't know where you are at. 
I think prisons can look like a whole lot of different things. But maybe you've come here this morning and you're thinking, God, I need breakthrough. I need you to move in my life. I can't find the netball court. I, can't, I don't know how to get out of this situation and I need you to move. And friends, there is great hope in this because we begin to see what this one little miracle can look like. Because miracles can look like a lot of different things and they can happen in a lot of different ways. But there's just this incredible little flow of events that is about to happen in Peter's life. Because as we come to this right now, I wanna show you a couple of things. Let's go. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Verse six, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. So Peter was in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Here's the first thing I want you to see, that Peter is alone, uh, Peter is isolated, but he's not alone. Peter is isolated in a dungeon, chained to, prison, uh, chained to soldiers, but he is not alone. And we got to understand this church, that the enemy wants to get you alone. That if he can remove you from the covering, if he can make you feel like no one is with you, then you can be, then you're exposed. And when you're exposed, he can begin to erode things like faith. Like as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about those rock formations on the Victorian coast, like what are the 12 disciples, right? Where they just, they're exposed, they're by themselves and the elements come against them and it slowly erodes away. But when they're together, if you have a rock formation that's strong and secure, it holds itself in place. There's something here that I love because Peter is isolated, but he's not alone. The church is there upholding Peter in prayer. And we've got to understand as a church, whatever we're facing, don't do it alone. You might feel isolated, but the power is to know that there are people who are praying for you. That God intends, He put a body together, a church together, so that we could uphold one another and, and cry out to God for one another. I love that. We're earnestly praying to God for Him. Who have we got praying for us? Who are we going to saying, I need you to pray for me? And as us, who are we praying for? Are our eyes just on ourselves? Or are they looking out to the church to lift one another up before the Lord? He's isolated, but he's not alone. And that brings us to this incredible uh, reality, what that does for Peter, because he knows he's not alone. We'll get to that in a minute. It actually enables him to sleep in his prison. Did you see that? The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was what? That has to be a mistake, doesn't it? Did you read that and be like, well, how the heck can that be? It says the night before Herod was to bring, the night before the night before Herod intended to kill him. He's been in prison for probably a week. And the night before his execution, he's stressed out of his mind. 
worrying about what's about to happen. Oh no, that's not what it says. It says he's sleeping between two soldiers. On my 10th anniversary, I think I've told this story before, Joe and I, we went to, um, we went on a hike in Tasmania and we took uh, her dad and his best friend. It was great fun. I'll never forget trying to sleep on this wooden thing. There was Joe, there was me, there was Alan and there was Jeff. That wasn't comfortable. Even on, the, even on the morning of our 10th anniversary, I woke up not facing Joe, I was facing Alan. And he had his eyes wide awake with his head like this and he said, happy anniversary, sweetheart. <laughs> it's not comfortable. And I was in Tasmania in a lovely sleeping bag next to my beautiful wife. I wasn't in a prison chained to two soldiers awaiting my imminent death. And I struggled to sleep. Could you imagine for one second, everything going through his head? Yes. Could you imagine the anxiety levels? Could you imagine he's just freaking out, worrying about the church, worrying about himself, worrying about everything that could possibly happen in the next 12 to 24 hours, not knowing how this ends. How is he asleep? This is not his natural disposition. Some of you might remember the last time there was a storm brewing that threatened his life. He happened to be on a boat with a bunch of his disciples and Jesus. And who was it that was asleep? It was Jesus, not him. What was he doing? Ah! Don't you care that we're gonna die? That was his natural disposition. But something's got in his spirit between then and now. Something has happened to Peter that has enabled him, though chained, though bound to the soldiers, to lay his head down and have some rest. That he was able to have peace even in his prison. And I wonder how many of us here have experienced peace even when we feel like we're in prison, even when we feel like we're chained, even when we feel like there's no hope, even when we feel stuck, that we would actually have peace, that we would have a peace and a presence of mind like Bailey to get off and go, well, Jesus, I don't know if he was actually peaceful, but he still had the presence of mind to go, Jesus, get me home. Peter's learned to sleep. That's a beautiful Promise, you know, that's a promise in the Psalms that God will give rest to His people. And the human tendency is to be filled with anxiety and to be filled with stress. And yet the Spirit of God would come and bring peace. That Peter can lay down his head and just trust Jesus, trust his Saviour that no matter what is going on, Jesus said he would build his church. And he said, the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Jesus had told him, hey, I have a home. I, where I am going, there is a room prepared for you. That whether I take you home right now or whether there is more work to do, I am trustworthy and I am true and I've got you and you can rest in me. And I felt so strongly this morning just to declare that over this place because I wonder if there's someone here who needs to hear that, that God has got you. He's got you. You are secure in His grip of grace. 
No one can snatch you from his hand. Not Herod, not 16 soldiers, not a dungeon, not nothing. No one can snatch you from his hand. Amen. He's got you. You ought to be saying amen to that. God has got you. And that security and assurance of faith lets Peter close his eyes and sleep. A sleep so deep. Watch this. Keep reading. A sleep so deep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and the light shone in the cell. How many of you, when the light comes in a room, wake up? The old blinds open, I'm up. Peter's in such a deep sleep, the light of an angel comes into the room. He's still sleeping. I love that. He's completely content, not content with his situation, but content with the reality of who he is in Christ. And so he's content in this moment. But the angel says to him, uh, the angel comes, the light shines in the cell. He struck Peter on the side. Woke him up. Whoa. And then he says, get up. Get up. He said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Oh, there's something amazing in this. What's the natural thing? What do we, when you, what's the order you assume things would happen in? The chains fall off first. You can't get up until the chains come off. Uh, 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 uh. That's not how this operates. The light comes in. When the light comes in, God's on the move. The light comes in. And then with the light comes an urgency. With the light, comes a thump. (laughs) With the light comes God's prompting to say, it's time to get up. I've given you rest, but it's time to stop sleeping. Peter, now is the time. It's time to arise. This reminds me of that beautiful old hymn, And Can It Be? And can it be? You know that one? That I, where he talks about, uh, I was in the prison and the, the light, a quickening ray came in and he goes, I woke and the dungeon flamed with light and then my chains fell off and my heart was free and I rose and I went forth and I followed thee. I love this. This is what the call of God is, that it's one thing to give, have peace in the, the problem, peace in the prison, but it's a totally other thing when God breaks in with His light to have the faith to get up and follow, to just get up and follow, even in that. But sometimes we wanna stay there because we've become so secure in our prison. But actually when God says, no, no, now I'm releasing you, I'm setting you free, but you've got to learn to follow me even when it doesn't make sense. Even when it doesn't make sense, it says that he had no idea what he was doing. I love that. He's like, a day, the light comes in, get up, chains fall off. And then he says, get dressed. Get dressed, put on your clothes, put on your sandals. That's that beautiful picture of be prepared for what is about to transpire. That there's certain things that only God can do. Only God can open prison doors. Only God can open the iron gate. Only God can bring deliverance. But there are some things that we can do to prepare ourselves for what God wants to do in our lives. 
There are some things that we need to do, like get dressed, put the armour of God on, in the prison, be doing the work, make sure we're in the Word, that we're praying, that we're seeking the Kingdom first and foremost, that we're believing for God to do something in our day. To be prepared, to have the oil filled, to have the lamp lit, to be waiting on God, to be ready, to be armed, amen? The light shines in, he wakes him up and he says, come, follow me. Peter is called to walk by faith and not by sight. To learn to go even when we don't know what God's doing. To learn to be a people who just keep taking one step after the other. And even when it seems like, God, what the heck are you doing? Why have you woken me up? How the heck are these doors gonna open? Why are the soldiers asleep? (laughs) They're supposed to be on 24 hour watch. What the heck happened there? Like sometimes we get in situations and it's so confusing and we wanna just lie back down rather than take the steps of faith just to follow the prompting of God. Peter is called to have faith to follow, to get up, to put on his clothes, even when it makes no sense, to put on his sandals when it makes no sense, to wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was only seeing a vision. And then they passed the first and second guards The inference there is that the guards are awake and in position. Isn't that cool? Isn't that awesome? Do you know what it makes me think of? It makes me think of that beautiful promise that no weapon formed against us will prosper. Yeah? Makes me think of that incredible promise that yet when I've, woken up to the things that God's calling me to be awake to. And when I'm walking in obedience, even if He causes me to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because He is with me. And He walks straight past two guards. Just, can you picture Peter for a second in this moment? There's the angel. Peter's kind of still like in this half days weird situation. There's that guard. He's like, g'day, mate. Then that guard is like, no worries, brother. I'm just heading out. And the guards are just like standing there. It's awesome. And the Lord just leads him out as he just faithfully follows the call of God. Not looking too far beyond. Sometimes, I don't know about you, I always want God to illuminate 55 steps into the future. Anybody else? When I read that passage, the Lord, you know, the the Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I say, what about a floodlight to my future? Anyone? Anyone with me here this morning? I always want the floodlight to my future, but the promise of God is it's a lamp unto our feet, which means it's this. And every now and then He might give us a little glimpse. Benny talked about getting a word from a young fella today a little glimpse 
But so often we live in the ideal of the floodlight instead of just being content with the promise of the footlight. But don't allow the fact that you only have a lamp onto your feet to be just that and only. What a gift. What an incredible gift because here's what it does. It causes us to trust in God, not make our own plans. We make our plans, but God orders our steps. And I'd much rather have God ordering my steps than me making my plans. Think about this church for a minute. If we'd had it my way, we would not be about to walk into six acres of land on Bolan Road with a beautiful, with no debt and with a plan for the future to reach Mount Barker and beyond. We would be somewhere else on smaller property with huge debt. Praise God. <laughs> Amen. Praise God that He is the one who orders our steps and sometimes feels like frustrates our future, but He knows what's best. And we are called to faithfully follow even in frustration and doubt. I wanna be someone who just step after step after step follows Him as He illuminates the path. Keeping my eyes on Him and on nothing else. Peter gets up and he faithfully follows. God opens the doors. I love it. Verse 10, as they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city, it opened for them by itself and they went through it. Do you know in the Greek, that is the same word where we get the word automated. How cool is that? It's an automatic door. He just walks up and God's like, you can't open this door, so I'm gonna open it for you. He walks through. But here's the fascinating thing. The same God who opened the prison doors didn't open the promise door. You notice that? Because if you keep reading this, Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary and the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. And Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant girl came, Rhoda came and answered the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. Peter kept on knocking. Sometimes in life, there are doors that God will open for us to cause us to then knock on another door. That there is this beautiful sense of partnership, right? That God actually wants us to participate in the work that He is doing. I don't necessarily understand it, but I know it's true that He actually says, hey, don't be lazy. Don't be lazy. I'm gonna bring deliverance. I'm gonna set you free. I'm gonna do the work that only I can do. I'll release you out of this prison and set you up, but you need to knock. You've gotta have the faith to knock. Be, don't be lazy in your faith. Be earnest, knock, keep knocking, keep knocking. Keep knocking on the door that you know God is calling you to. And here's what I love about Peter. He knows where to knock. Yeah? Notice he doesn't run back to his house. 
If you got set free from prison, where's the first place you would go? He doesn't go to his house. He doesn't go to his wife. He goes to the house of prayer. Where his wife probably was. (laughs) But he knows where the prayers are at. Or feel like preaching this. He knows where the prayers are at. Church, the most important meeting we have all week doesn't start at 9.30 here. It starts at 8.15 up there. And I want you all to come. (laughs) Prayer, the church, this is where the two scenes collide. The church is earnestly laying out in prayer for Peter. And they have been praying nonstop for probably the best part of a week. Labouring in prayer, crying out to God for Peter. Peter knew it. He knew they were praying. Why else would he go there? He was probably in that room praying for James. And then they arrested him and he knows exactly where to go. He goes knocking on the right door. Some of us keep knocking on the wrong door. God sets you free from stuff and you keep running straight back to the door where you were in your prison. You get set free from something. You, you, you hear a great message. People pray over you. You sense the presence of God and you realise your chains are broken, but you're going back to the very same place where the chains were in the first place. Know where to knock. The house of prayer, people who have your best intentions at heart, people who are labouring for you in prayer, who want the best for you, who are prepared to call a spade a spade, to speak the truth. Don't run back to where you were, but run to where God would have you. He goes to the house of prayer and he knocks, but not only does he know where to knock, he knows when to knock. Amen? Midnight. Midnight, guess what? There's no better time than the present. If you have a need, knock. Some of us are far too polite with God. Far too polite. And so we pray politely instead of praying as though our life depends upon it. Can I encourage everybody here, no matter if whatever you're going through, let's be a psalmist kind of prayer. People who pray like our lives depend upon it, yeah? That doesn't mean that you have to yell. We've said this before, passion isn't volume, it's a posture. It's a posture of reliance upon God. And it's going, I need you. And it's not being ashamed to ask for help even in the middle of the night. Reminds me of a parable of Jesus knocking on your neighbour's door for bread. He's not gonna refuse you because of the earnestness. Know when to knock because as he says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds and to him who knocks, it will be opened. Band, you can come up. Because as we close this out, I want you to see just two quick other things. The first one is this. Not only does he know where to knock, does he know when to knock, but he also knows why to knock. Verse 16, Peter motioned with his hand after they've opened the door. 
to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. Why is Peter knocking on Mary's door? To encourage them that their prayers have carried power. The Bible tells us that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And if you're in Christ Jesus, you're like, hey, I'm not righteous, but if you're in Christ Jesus, the Bible says you are the righteousness of God, which means if you're a Christian and you love Jesus, your prayers are powerful and effective. The Bible says that your prayers like incense rise before Him in the book of Revelation. Incense is a stinky, smelly thing. You can't help but be drawn to it. You can't help but be drawn to it. It just means that God's attention is on prayers. Every prayer, it's like... Ben's praying. Lee's praying. Sheila's just lifting up a word. That's what happens when we pray. It captivates God. And he, Peter, wants the church to know. He wants the church to know. He doesn't want them to worry any longer. He's like, hey, the prayers have worked. God's done a miracle. This is amazing. Now I've got to get out of here. And so he goes, so he actually makes a stop to share his testimony before he takes off. Isn't that awesome? Let's be a people who share the stories of what God has done. That's why we come up here and talk about Hohidii, because we want the church to be encouraged by the testimonies of what God is doing, yeah? Because we overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And we wanna declare the testimony of God. He goes to tell his testimony. And the last thing here, there's so much more, but the last thing, that if you're an astute reader, as you've worked your way through this chapter, there's a question that you can't escape. And that question is simply this, why Peter and not James? Anybody been asking that? Why Peter and not James? Why is it that God allowed James to be beheaded, but miraculously rescued Peter? It's probably just about time to finish up, so. Do you know the really interesting thing is that the Bible never really gives an answer to that question, not even in the book of Job. The answer God always gives is trust my sovereignty. And we can, we can make all sorts of reasons. Like I can look at this and I can say, well, actually, because Acts chapter 15 is coming, the Council of Jerusalem, where the most important decision around the Christian faith and establishing sound doctrine for thousands of years is coming. And Peter's the one who gives a testimony that sets that on the right course. So you could say, well, God needed Peter for that moment. But that still doesn't answer fundamentally the heart question. But the heart question is this. The heart answer is this, is that God is sovereign. And there are a lot of things in this life that do not make sense because we see but a step ahead. God sees everything. 
And what God calls us to do is to trust Him, to know that He has us in His grip, to know that there is an eternal heavenly home that He has prepared for us. And whether it ends as you walk out onto that road right now or whether on your hundredth birthday, God's heart for you is the same and His promise to you is true. And we can trust Him. We can trust the salvific work of Christ. We can have hope that our God is good and His promises are true. And really that's the message of this chapter is trust God. Don't stop praying. Don't stop believing in the goodness of God. Just trust Him each step of the way. He has you. And the church didn't stop praying because of James. They kept praying for Peter. And Peter's deliverance brought hope. Peter's deliverance brought encouragement in the same way that James has brought grief. But I'll tell you, both of them right now are in glory. It wasn't much longer after this that Peter did lose his life, crucified upside down for the cause of the Gospel. Only a few short years after, but it gave him time to write a a couple of letters called 1 and 2 Peter. It gave him time to speak at the Jerusalem Council. It gave him time to teach the church that it's not just for the Jews, but it's for the world. God had a purpose for Peter in those days that He didn't have for James. And as a church, sometimes we just have to trust that God in His glorious, infinite wisdom knows what's best and is good. And just maybe it was in James' martyrdom that God furthered in His kingdom in a way that He never would have without it. I don't know. I know that God is good. And I know we've got to keep praying. And I know we've got to keep believing for one more miracle. Peter needed one more miracle. It's the only other miracle we see in a physical sense in his life before the Lord calls him home. church to wait upon the Lord. And so as we close today, I want to encourage you, no matter how big or small, no matter what situation you're in, that we serve a God of miracles. We serve the God who shines His light into the dungeon, who sometimes gives us a whack on the head to wake us up and says, come follow me. I just feel, felt this morning in preparation and prayer just to offer an opportunity for everyone here who's in that place where you're like, do you know what? I need one more miracle. I need some breakthrough in my life. And I want to ask um, our pastoral elders just to come forward. Chris, Tim, Brent, Fred, Rory, Angela, if you're here. I hope I haven't missed any of the elders. That would be super embarrassing. James 5. 
Verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the Name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We're gonna have a time where if you're happy to lift up a song of praise, we're gonna have a time where if you're in trouble to come and get prayer, to pray for one another, but also to come forward and let's do the biblical thing. We have some oil and these guys are here to pray just to dip their finger in the oil. Won't be weird, but just a little cross on your forehead. Lay hands on your shoulder and just pray. You don't have to dive into the nitty gritty, but the Bible does say confess your sins. But if that's whatever you need right now, we have our elders here to pray in faith, to believe for just one more miracle in your life. Maybe it's not even you. Maybe it's a family member, wherever breakthrough is needed, wherever breakthrough is needed. Why don't we do what the Bible says? Let's not fret in the prison. Let's not worry and scheme and think about how the heck I'm gonna get myself out of this. Let's rest in the promise of God. Let's obey His commands. Let's get prayer. Let's follow Him in faith. Let's knock on the door of grace and walk into the thing that God has for us. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. And the team will lead us. And as we do, I'll lead us in prayer and then invite you to come. Loving Heavenly Father, we honour you we worship You, we praise You, and we thank You. Lord, we thank You for that miracle. We thank You for every step along the way. We thank You for the great encouragement it is to us that You are the God who makes a way even where there seems to be no way. You are the God who calls Your, your body to pray for one another. You don't call us to do this alone to never be isolated, but to walk this life together. So Lord, I pray for all my brothers and sisters right now in the Name of Jesus. And I pray freedom. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. I declare that freedom over this place, over every person. I declare a waking up. I declare a getting up in faith. I declare a chains falling off. I declare a faithful obedience and a boldness to knock and to declare the goodness of God in our world. Lord, I pray for every person here whose heart is troubled that You would bring peace. For every person who's questioning faith that You would bring an assurance that comes by the finished work of the cross for every person who needs a miracle, for those who are sick, we speak healing in Jesus' Name. Healing in Jesus' Name.
Lord, we love You and we praise You and we thank You. In Jesus' almighty name we pray. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.